Welcome to the Peg Doesn't Fit. The Peg Doesn't Fit is a podcast about the need for an educational paradigm shift. We have not quite decided if education is the whole or if it is the peg, but one thing is for sure, it doesn't fit. Join us each week as we explore our metaphor and discuss the need for a systematic shift in the American educational system. My name is Eric Stephen. And I'm Ryan Bartle. Welcome to The Peg Doesn't Fit. Ryan, do you ever build in time for your students to just talk? You mean I could do that? (laughs) Absolutely. And we're not encouraging to just let students have free talk, but a guided conversation so you can walk around and just listen to what they're saying and learn more about them so you can develop quality relationships with them and learn what it is that they want to learn in your class. I think that sounds powerful. What it does is it allows students to develop some ownership. And then if you take it to the next level, now don't get me wrong, it takes a while But if you spend the time to teach them how to have quality conversations and how to actually own their learning, then you can start to develop quality projects together with the kids to allow them to learn your content in a way that makes sense to them. And I bet that increases engagement too. Absolutely. And another way to make sure that you do this in a quality way is to get a partner teacher that teaches the same thing as you do and you guys talk together and build off ideas with each other. This sounds a lot like collective efficacy. And you're even developing a little collective efficacy within your own class because your students now have a part in what that class is going to look like. Mm. You guys are in for a treat today because we had the opportunity to visit with Dr. Monica Hausen, and that's exactly what we talked about. We talked about building in time for students to talk. We talked about building in time for students to provide feedback to each other for their projects and to even provide feedback to the teacher. And we talked about the power of joining up with another teacher to develop some collective efficacy and to plan together and build off each other's ideas in order to make our lessons continue to get better. Monica Hausen is a career educator with over 20 years of experience teaching high school mathematics in both independent and public schools in the U.S. and overseas. She has received two Fulbright teacher grants, each for a year in Latvia and Hungary. After her most recent Fulbright, co-authored our International Education, Stories of Living, Teaching, and Parenting Abroad, about her family's adventures living in a country where they did not speak the language. Dr. Hausen has contributed to Mathematics Teacher, the publication of the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics, and ASCD Express. She currently serves on the Connecticut High School Mathematics Reform Task Force, a joint effort to examine and make recommendations about math education to the State Department of Education and school leaders. Her hobbies include origami, which she loves to incorporate into her geometry classes. She seeks to empower both students and teachers in education and is currently focused on examining the impact of student-centered professional learning communities on student engagement. We are glad you joined us. Please enjoy this conversation. We hope that you enjoy this interview as much as we got from giving. We welcome Dr. Monica Hausen to the show this afternoon. How are you, Ms. Hausen? Or sorry, Dr. Hausen. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great. Thank you for having me. And please call me Monica. 
Will do. Well, we are so grateful that you got on the show. And listen, we gave a quick introduction of you uh, prior to you coming on the show. But one of the things that I really wanted to talk about, and I actually pulled it out of your introduction to talk about in this show, you say that you're a strong proponent of experiential learning. And you once accompanied a group of students on a self-sustained 3,600 mile (laughs) transcontinental bicycle tour of the U.S., can you talk to us about that trip and, and how did that go for you? Yeah, that's a pretty big statement right there, huh? So so I was teaching at an independent school and there's a little more flexibility in independent schools, I think, than, um, than public schools. And a guest speaker came and he had written a book about taking some middle school students on a cross-country bicycle tour one summer. And I listened to his presentation along with some the student body and I had some students approach me after the fact and say hey you know wouldn't that be really cool and they bought his book and they read his book and they shared it with me and said we should do this and I had just come back from being overseas on a Fulbright and I learned a lot about Europe and I was game I said let's do it let's see our own country and A couple high school students and I trained for a year and that training included, you know, I had never ridden a bicycle more than maybe 10 miles. 10 miles was a long bicycle trip. 3,600 miles is a lot longer than 10. It was 10 weeks. We flew, we dismantled our bicycles. We flew across the country. We reassembled our bicycles. That was all new learning. You know, I took a course in how to change a flat tire and the rules of the road you know, I didn't know any of that. The students didn't really know. And we packed our own gear. So we slept in tents, among other places, including um, the town hall in a town, baseball fields, people's backyards. And we bicycled anywhere from, say, 15 miles on a really short day with some severe headwinds and maybe a lot of flats to over 100 miles across the country through 13 states an incredible experience. I mean, we got to meet the people of our nation. This was prior to cell phones being such a big thing. Oh yeah. You know, we had paper maps. We had one cell phone between the four of us. I can't really get to the other side of town with that GPS. (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was an incredible experience for everybody and the students, the whole school actually got really behind it. The students had a dance they hosted to raise money. It, It wound up being a a fundraiser for a children's um, HIV AIDS art program. So we raised money along that. Um, We held some bicycle safety programs for the kids in the lower school. It just, I mean, it, it was a big endeavor. And I was not, you know, it's not like I'm a cyclist. I didn't know what I was doing. I just joined with these kids and I said, let's do it. Let's figure it out as we go. It took a year of planning Yeah, and we just persevered through it and, and made it happen. And it was incredible. What a great authentic learning experience. Now, was this during the summer or like during the school year? This was during the summer. So we left the end of June and we were back by the end of August. Okay, cool. Well, that sounds, that sounds amazing. And you know what, in my research, I've seen some, uh, some schools that are, that are kind of outside the box like that, because, you know, like you said, you went out there and, and you didn't know nothing. 
and you're learning. So this whole bike ride is like a big design thinking activity. <laughs> and Ab you guys absolutely. Learning as you're going and what a great experience. And those students will never forget that. And I'm sure that they learned lessons in that. Did you say it was 10 weeks? 10 weeks. Yeah, yeah. we've learned lessons in that 10 weeks that maybe in some degree might be more memorable to everything they learned all four years of high school. Yeah, absolutely. And the whole idea of being able to set a goal and accomplish it and have it really be uh, a major, a major event is huge. Teamwork, you know, all those 21st century skills that are so hot right now really were embedded right in this, in this project. Awesome. Well, good for yeah. you for taking that leap of faith and, and heading out. Yeah. There. My friend asked me if I wanted to go on a hiking trip with him, and I, I think it was 150 miles, and I'm still kind of debating. That's just a, a, a one-day thing. So kudos to you for going 3,600 miles. Let's transition into uh, some of your work and some of your teaching. I know that you are Dr. Hausen, and in your dissertation and through your research, you, uh, you did some pretty good research talking about the importance of developing a professional learning community. We're going to get into that, but Let's, well, let's just start about the successes. What, what is so important about developing that professional learning community? And then let's talk about some of the more intricate details about it in a second. So, you know, I've noticed, I've been teaching for over 20 years. I've noticed my kids are not always engaged. I don't know if you've encountered that. I'm sure our <laughs> listeners have as well. Right. So they're disaffected with school. I teach high school mathematics. So this is not an elective course. This is not a course that many students uh, enjoy. And I had noticed over the years, just growing disaffection in the students and me as well. What I was teaching, I found sort of increasingly boring. My presentation I felt was stagnant. There's a whole world out there. Math is so applicable to so many things. What am I doing teaching these drills? And I teach this senior level math class, and um, it was the lowest level math class that we offer at our school. And I had been doing some research in my doctoral program. And for the first time, two other teachers were going to be teaching sections of that class as well. So we had a nice team of three teachers teaching various sections of that class. And I said, I think this is the year. Let's shake this up. I didn't feel that I could really do it alone. I really wanted a group. Right. So we we created our own professional learning community, a PLC, to kind of reach outside what we were previously doing and feed off of each other and help each other through a transition in this class. And we didn't know what that transition was going to look like. I think it's really important to just point out that we did not necessarily have a goal in mind other than to disrupt what we were currently doing. And I'm assuming it was very successful for you. Did it start out successful? Because I, in my experience, sometimes it's been difficult for me to get teachers to say buy into collaborating. You know, why do you think that in some instances, some teachers are resistant to the idea of working together with other teachers? Right. So I think education traditionally is pretty siloed in many ways. And I think a lot of teachers are used to teaching and working independently. I think there can be a general resistance to change in general, right? But I think if teachers have had some professional development that has not really made an impact, they feel like it hasn't made an impact in their class, or they didn't walk away from a professional development opportunity with something really concrete and tangible, 
that they see can be applied, I think that can be disappointing. And so teachers may have been burned one too many times, right, by high hopes for collaboration that sort of fizzle out, or even just putting in the time. It takes a lot of time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the whole idea of these one and done professional development activities really are kind of past and they're really shown not to be effective. And I think a lot of teachers have been burned by those, those programs that don't really accomplish maybe what they were set out to do and don't translate into the classroom, or at least teachers don't have the tools to translate those. You know, there's a lot of research on what makes effective professional development. And it's kind of interesting because our group sort of stumbled into this. So professional development should be embedded in the job. It shouldn't be a workshop somewhere else. It can be, but that might not be as effective. It can't be necessarily just a site visit. It needs to be embedded in your job. Uh, it needs to be collaborative and it needs to be sustained. And I think that sustained piece is something that we, we don't give enough time for things to take root and grow. So we start a new idea and then we move on to the next thing before that one really comes to fruition and because it, before it really has a chance to kind of meander and see where it's going to go. Some of those are dead ends, but I think some of them aren't really given a chance to bloom. So what I like the most of what you're talking about, because a PLC, I mean, in my mind, really is, is kind of teacher-led. And I think it allows teachers to really build off of the ideas of other teachers. So, and at least what I'm envisioning in my head with a PLC, this is a group of you three math teachers that have decided, you know, we all teach the same thing. This is new. Let's shake some things up and let's build off each other's expertise to really make this into something great. And from that mindset, it sounds, it sounds fantastic. And I could imagine like in your building, perhaps, because I've seen this in other PLCs, you do see groups, pockets of groups that they just get along really well for whatever they trust each other and they really talk to each other and they really do do some magical things. How can that group take what they're doing and convince the rest of the staff that, hey, listen, I get it. You've been burned one too many times and you're not really into this, but this is what we're doing. And these are the results that we're getting. And just try to explode that into a building wide buy-in into the importance of collaborating with a group of teachers and not being led necessarily by an instructional coach or an administrator. This is just us being professionals wanting to get better and give the absolute best product to our student. How can we make that go building wide? Great question. I wish I had the answer, the easy packaged answer with like bullet point one, two, three, and boom. But I think a lot of what you said is true. It can't necessarily be top down. This, the success of our PLC is because it was grassroots. The three of us decided, let's shake this up. We didn't have a clear direction, but we had a clear vision, right? So we knew we wanted to shake this up. We didn't know how to do that yet, but we decided as a group that we were going to strive for that together. I think the environment also plays a big factor. You need a really supportive environment where teachers are encouraged to take risk. Absolutely. And that risk is even celebrated. Absolutely. So in our PLC, we shared the leadership, the three of us. It's not like I was the doctoral student, so I took the reins. We really each took turns. And I'll tell you, in our group, 
we had another doctoral student. So she was very heavily into the research and interested in this. And we also had a 30 year, 35 year veteran teacher who, you know, was looking a couple more years and he's looking to retire. And this was a really novel approach that we took. We wound up heading into a project-based learning approach. And he, after, it took a while, and he really started to take the reins after some time. And I think we had a really supportive group. We were very open and honest with each other about what was working and what wasn't. So we even went into each other's classes. We were guest speakers in each other's classes. We took sort of a collective ownership for each other's students, right? A collective responsibility, I should say. And we really supported each other in helping. Like if I had a really terrible lesson, I could talk together to teachers who would say, oh, not just, oh, that's too bad, but tell us the details because whatever we learn from your experience is going to translate directly to us in the classroom. And so going back to your question, I think being able to spread this to other groups, it's got to come from them, first of all. It can't necessarily be mandated, right? And I think there's got to be that collective sense of purpose. And there's got to, there's got to be something that they see translating in the classroom. And I'll tell you, this 30-year veteran teacher, he at the end of the year, he said, I'm a better teacher because of the work that we've done. That's powerful. Powerful. For him to be able to go talk to another teacher who might be resistant and say, hey, you know, I felt that way. I wasn't sure where we were going or what we were going to do, but I had some of my best evaluations this year, and mm-hmm. I am a better teacher, and I'm taking some of this, and I'm translating it into my other classes is huge. And I think for teachers to hear that informally, that informal in the hall conversation, the water cooler talk is so critical. Absolutely. And I've always been a, you know, success begets success, you know, it's all about, it's all about taking those baby steps. So listen, let's get into some of your teaching. Now we'll say just kind of for a teaser for our audience, we will be having on as a guest, Chad Dumas. He'll be on in about a month. He's written a book. Let's put the C back in PLC. So we'll really dive into this PLC idea here in about a month, but let's get into some of your instructional strategy work. So one of the things that you mentioned is the importance to talk to build trust. And I'm assuming that you're talking about student talk. Some teachers, you know, maybe kind of aren't really big about giving up some of their precious content time to discuss content or discuss things that interest students. But what in your research is the most important thing about building in that time to, to talk? Well, I can definitely understand. I It's something I wrestle with, that balance between having time to talk and that sort of that push for content, that feeling like there's never enough time to quote, cover the material, right? And as a math teacher, there's a lot of pressure to teach cover algebra one so that these kids are ready for algebra two. However, I really feel that the students are not going to learn unless they're ready to learn. And we need to create an environment where students are willing to learn and they're ready. So, you know, same with me. I attend some professional development for tech. And it's not till three weeks later when I try to implement it that I have all the questions. During the session, I didn't have any questions, right? Right. But that common ground really builds the foundation for that successful learning for students. The only way to find out what's going on in my kids' lives is to talk to them. And 
we found that talking to build trust was really important within our PLC, but also in the classroom. Just take some time out, what's going on? We found out a kid lost their parent. We found out a student was having issues with their after-school job. Not only do I learn more about the kids and, and different topics that I can try to embed in my teaching, but just kids having a hard day. I would like to think that my classroom is a safe space where they can be themselves and allow that to just to sit, to be there, for me to be present to them. And it's, it's not easy and you do, have to take, you do have to take time out for it. And it can feel forced sometimes too. But what's it look like? I mean, so is it like a whole class thing? Like maybe you're like in a circle, just kind of talking like, hey, what'd you do today? Or is it just open like you guys talk and I'm just going to walk around and listen to what you're talking about? I mean, what what does that look like? Yeah. So between the three of us, we all had kind of a different approach to this. So one of us actually did a circle, like you said, and would periodically just have the kids sit in circles and go around the room and just say what's up, what's going on. That was not a strategy I was as comfortable with. And I found that I really kind of needed the blanket of the content to kind of support our conversations. But those conversations could center on, hey, what's working in this class for you? What do you like? What's going well? Why? Did you ever have a teacher in the past do it that way? What about a a class that you really like? Maybe math is not what you care for, but what did your social studies teacher ever do that you really, really liked? What's not going well for you? What would you like to see me change? And kind of starting with smaller questions like that that are targeted in the content, but now you open the door for students to be a little more honest. For me to be honest, hey, I don't think that last project was that great. Here's what I didn't like about it. What do you think? So they can start seeing there's some honesty from my part as well and that I have a vested interest in making change. So we really, it was important to us that we brought our students into that process of change also. But I think it looks different for everybody. Different teachers have different comfort levels with that. Well, you know, and we just finished an episode with Kim Hopkins, who works with Lives in the Balance, and we really focused on uh, collaborative, proactive solutions. It's It's a model for teaching behavior and getting proactive before the misbehavior happens. We've got a we've got a session coming up down the road on restorative practice mm-hmm. and so basically what I'm hearing you say and I don't want to stay on this for too long. We'll wrap it up on this segment but um I'm hearing you say, I've got to build a relationship with my kids because my kids, you know, they don't necessarily come to school for math. <laughs> Learning math is a byproduct But if they're going to come to school because they really like me as a person and trust me, then perhaps I can get more out of them in the long run than what I might be able to get out of them if I just go straight, always 100% math talk. And I don't even know them as a person. So I think that's great that you're building into your class because obviously having relationships with students is a huge component in motivation and getting students to really want to care. And I would build on that as well. That's, that's something that I have told, I've been a mentor teacher for several years and I've told teachers, they may not buy into the content, but they're going to buy into you. Mm-hmm. You have to show them that you are worth buying into and the content will follow. Building that confidence in conversation in class then can translate to the, the content itself because the students become more comfortable conversing in class. Absolutely. And, and you're building that comfort zone because I'm getting into the next, con, uh, the next question that you kind of already talked about was getting 
feedback and self-reflection from the students. Hey, you are willing to put yourself out there to say, hey, I know that I'm the teacher and I'm even a doctor, you know, but I don't know anything. How did that go? And, and you are willing to take their feedback and modify what you're doing. And that's got to speak volumes too, knowing that the students have a voice in your class. Because that was one of the things we talked about with Kim is it's so often the voice of our students is completely disregarded. You know, we, we are just like almost treating them like robots because we are so functioned to get this information and cram it down their brain that we're not even remembering that they're people and they have needs and we have to treat them like people. So do you have any other examples of the feedback and the self-reflection that you've used with the kids that you want to share with us? Yeah, absolutely. And you really hit the nail on the head. Students need to feel valued. And by inviting them into that conversation about, hey, this is your class too. We're in this together. What do you want out of this? How can I provide you with that? I, you know, I'm not going to lie. It's a lot of work on the teacher's part. But when those students start realizing that you're actually listening to them and you're really using their feedback in the next project. So, for example, we did a project. We tried to embed a challenge in each of our in each of our projects so that students, well, you know, were challenged. Sure, and sure. Um, we, for example, right off the bat, one of our projects was um, uh, they had to present for thirty minutes in their group. Students usually present for five minutes. Maybe a long presentation is ten, but we we wanted them pr to present for thirty minutes in a class and bring in an outside guest. Oh, wow. They had to invite another adult from the building mm. into class to listen to them. That adult became part of the feedback. Every activity we did, not every activity, but every project we did, we had students fill out a two stars and a wish form. So two things that stood out that they liked about someone's project. Projects didn't have to be presentations, they could be other forms. And one thing they wished, that they would have seen a little differently. They had to give constructive feedback to each other. We then gave them time to go back and take a look at that feedback, either make changes to their projects or put it into a reflective piece. We had a reflective piece for them along the way as well. Self-reflection. Nice. They had to write a self-reflective piece. What would they have done differently based on the feedback they got? Oh, that is a great activity. Right. And then we also, after each project, asked them to critique us. What was our delivery? How was our delivery? What did they like about the project itself? So one of the projects they felt it was a little too early in the year, maybe for them to have loose reins. And we gave them maybe looser reins than they could have handled. And they told us it was too open-ended. They didn't know what to do. So the next project we presented, we had built-in checkpoints. And we explained, we're building in these checkpoints for us to check in with you and see how you're doing because the last project you said was too loose. So we always told them exactly why we were making the changes we were making. Now, the checkpoints, now you know, you're talking, those are checkpoints for the teacher. When you say we, it's, is that your other teachers that you guys plan that with together? Yes, okay. exactly. Yes. Gotcha. Right. And so we, I wanted to know, did we get it right? We, the teachers, did we put something together for you that was meaningful, that you got something out of? And it was a learning experience for us too. I wasn't used to putting together these really huge projects that were entire units in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. So it was a process for me and the students knew that. And so I think 
we have good kids. We have good students. They want to help. They want to be involved. They want to make a difference. They knew they were making a difference in this course. They knew that it was going to have an impact on students who took the course in the future. Who, who doesn't want to be a part of making something better? Right. And I love the two stars and a wish because student presentations is a very valuable skill that we have got to get our, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I mean, getting in front of a class, I would like tremble and shake. I couldn't even talk. I was so nervous, but, but I had to do it. And I'm glad I did because I did eventually develop the skills to where I could be comfortable in front of others. But so often, if I go into a classroom, I will see a student up there presenting, but the audience, which are the other kids aren't doing anything. So the fact that you have a task for the audience to do, to provide feedback to that student. And then it's not just, you're doing this just because I said so. I mean, it's actually doing it because I'm giving you as the audience an outside perspective of how you did. And these are some things that maybe I wish you would have done. And then you're allowing the presenter to take that feedback and write a reflection or perhaps modify their presentation and modify how they would have done it differently if they use that student's feedback. So I think, I think it's brilliant because it still gives the kids in the audience a voice and it gives them stuff to look for. So they're learning from the kids. Yes, absolutely. We had an activity where students went outside. Uh, we were doing some trigonometry. They had to go outside with a, a compass and they had to walk a certain path to different landmarks and they had to plot out their paces and what their compass bearing was. They had to write down some notes I had students exchange note cards with that information and they had to go try to walk each other's paths. Mm. So it really emphasized that need for feedback because if your paces were off, if your heading was off, somebody couldn't follow your path. They couldn't follow your trail. So they critiqued each other. And I think that really drove home the point. This is important. You're giving valuable feedback to someone. If you hadn't given them that feedback, their path would have been wrong. I would not have been able to follow it their grade would have suffered, right? So right from the start, they knew what they had to say to each other was important. We also kickstarted the year without giving them any answers. It's a math class, right? Do some work. I'm not gonna tell you if you're right or wrong. Oh, wow. They, they had to talk to each other. And ultimately the goal was, you should be able to figure out if someone's logic is sound and if they're getting to the right answer or not. Talk to each other. You have something valuable to say. I'm not the only one with something good to say in class. Your peers do also. So we had to really kind of scaffold what we did to train our students. I mean, these were seniors. They had 12, 13 years of school behind them of, you know, being an empty vessel and receiving. So we had to break down some walls a little bit to get kids a little more engaged. That's what I was going to ask. So, so, cause all of this sounds fantastic because I'm all about, you know, I'm always telling teachers, how can you set those kids up to uncover that information rather than you always giving it to them? If we can put our kids in the right space to allow them to find what they need without giving them the information, the kids are going to that's going to stay with them forever. Well, maybe not forever, but I mean, it's going to stay with them longer because they had to figure it out and they have ownership in it. But I am curious because some of the stuff that you've talked about is, is pretty high level stuff. And it is a lot of student led. How long does it take or mm. what's some advice to, you know, somebody that wants to try that out? How do you kind of do that in parts, baby steps to eventually get them where you're going to get them? Because you can't just have them all come to class and say, hey, welcome, I'm your teacher, you guys go learn. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
I would say it took more than half a year for both the students and for us to kind of find our groove. Students needed to be trained and taught how to give feedback and what constructive feedback looks like. That was something I wrestled with because a lot of students have been taught, I'm not doing this unless I get a grade for it. If it's not going to be graded, it's not worth my time. Right. I wasn't grading their feedback. I wanted them to give good feedback to each other because it was genuinely of value, right? But they needed that training. Otherwise they would just, some of them, not all, would just write, it was good. I liked it. it right, one sentence answers. Right, we had to look at, I had to put examples on the board. Absolutely. Why is this constructive criticism and why is this not? What's the difference and why does it matter? Why is it important? I like, you know, I needed to get that buy-in from them as well. You had to, you taught them what good feedback looks like. Yes. That is excellent. And that takes time away from content, but they're not going to get the content and they're not going to improve on the content unless they have those requisite skills. All right. So take us through your experience in including students in your pedagogical planning and uh, tell us how it's helped improve instruction and your student productivity. Yeah, so that's that's a big question. We um, It did take us more than half a year as teachers to really get more comfortable with this, our chosen path of project-based learning. I would say it was after our midterm exam, which also was a project, that we kind of flipped, we embraced project-based learning and we had the projects drive the learning as opposed to being culminating mm, projects. Absolutely. We became more comfortable and we said, so this next unit, let's have the students participate in coming up with a grading rubric with us. Mm. So we had been focused on a distinction between product and process. And we were trying to guide students through the process in order to build the product. And what I did was I actually had sticky notes and we did an affinity mapping in class. And I just told students, what do you wanna be graded on? Hmm. And I had them put all kinds of things down on their sticky notes. They put them up on the board, they moved them around, we put them into categories. And it's funny because I noticed a distinct lack of sticky notes in the category of like content and mathematical knowledge, <laughs> the things that were my goal. They really wanted to be graded on creativity and aesthetics and how hard they worked, which are all of value. So it wasn't all just the students driving things. I had to step in, of course, but we got sort of into this sort of creativity loop where they, they could tell me what they wanted to be graded on, what they were looking to do. I could see how I could incorporate it. I could come back to them and say, here's what I'm coming up with. Here's what I think. And we just, we started this, this cyclic exchange, if you will, of bringing stuff to the table and seeing what would work. Now, my other two teachers and I, of course, we had the final say on what would work, but we did get to the point at the end of the year where we gave the students the chance to do an independent project where on anything they were interested in and they had to find the math and they had to present the math that was embedded in whatever their final hobby interest 
was. We had students talk about travel. We had students talk about pole vaulting and how the, the, the pole will break when you pole vault, it breaks a certain way. Mm -hmm. And we looked into mathematical theorems behind this. I had a student, very good soccer player who was interested in the math behind bending the soccer ball. And this was hard math. It was beyond some of their levels, but they came away saying, wow, there's math in everything in stuff I would have never thought about. And that was, that was really powerful and fun. We had a lot of fun. It was, it was fun to be creating together. That, you know, I wish someone would have done that with me because I still struggle with figuring out why in the world I went to math class. Cause you know, <laughs> I, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to get into my theory on math because I know you're a math teacher and math teachers love their math, but I'm curious the big, and it's always been part of education, but maybe even more so now there's a big talk about standards. You know, we've always got to be teaching to the standards and we've always got to have our targets. And so how do you, when you're utilizing student voice to plan some of these super creative projects to kind of let them go off on their own, how do you maintain that focus on the standards that the state says you have to teach? So that is the area that I wrestle with the most. So this course is not based on common core. Mm -hmm. This is a senior level class. Students have finished algebra two. We have a lot of freedom in this class. We have certain core topics that we, that we tackle, but we are not as tied to standards as for example, our algebra two classes. And it is definitely much harder to embed these bigger projects and this more student-centered learning in those classes I have found. That is something that I really, I really struggle with because in the end, I've been hired to do a certain job and teach a certain content. And that content in my state is, is common core based. And I'm, I'm tied. I'm tied in a lot of ways. Uh, Whenever I can break out of that, I try to, but going back to something I said earlier, it took more than half a year to get these students really in a good place as far as their own inquiry and their own participation. And if this is just in bits and pieces in a course that's really standards-based, it's going to be hard to make it happen in one year. So, and I know this is, this is going to, and you don't have to answer this. I can cut it out if you want, but I'm curious on your own philosophy as a math expert in terms of, do you think that if we just punted on regular math class, traditional math class and taught math in this way, that we would be preparing our students to be successful in their lives using the skills that we learned that had some math infused within those projects? Yes. I, I do. I think so. I think there is a group of students who are going to go ahead and take calculus and multivariable calculus and differential equations, and they want the theory behind the mathematics, who are going to go there because they see the beauty of the mathematics itself. So let them go. We don't all have to learn how to program the graphing calculator. Someone programmed the graphing calculator, and then we use it as a tool, right? Someone needs to know how to do that but everybody doesn't need to know how to do that. And I would rather my students come away from school having an appreciation and an understanding 
of mathematics, where it is around them and ha- retain that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the projects and it's the personalization that's going to make that happen. Yes, I would like them to have basic algebra skills, but I think that can be woven in. Yeah. And, and that's the kind of stuff that we're talking about. And again, you know, we have to do it within the constraints that are placed on us. But what you've described is like, to me, a perfect school. You know, we're going to have this project-based school, you know, and, and, and probably bring a lot of interdisciplinary studies within the content. But you, for those kids that are like, I love math, you know, and I want to do math every second of my, they've got that track, they can do it. Yes. For everybody else, we just need to focus on teaching skills and how to be successful citizens in life. And to be honest with you, I I was thinking about this the other day because I saw a tweet about, you know, do we really need to teach all this stuff on math? And again, I don't want to offend you because you're a math teacher, but there's been a couple of times that I've been driving down the road and I tried to figure out the speed formula to figure out how long it was going to take me to get. And for the life of me, I couldn't figure out how to plug the numbers. So what I'm getting at is I don't know if I've ever used a formula in my life to figure anything out ever. Right. But I learned them all. If I really need to figure out a perimeter, I can download an app and take a picture with my phone and it will do it for me. So I'm not trying to to say we don't need math. I'm just wondering if we need it in the way in which it's being delivered. Yeah. And that's a huge conversation in the math world. And it's very split. And there are proponents on both sides. And it's a it's a tricky conversation. But I think it's certainly not for everyone. Not everyone needs to know all of it. And the old argument, well, and I've seen this a lot, I need to learn my, my high school math because I'm gonna have to help my kid with this when they go to school. <laughs> right. If that's the reason that you're learning it, then we're, we're failing. As, as an education, right. we're failing. That yeah. should not be why someone is learning it just to propagate it. <laughs> right. And you're right though. I've heard people say that all the time. I need to know this so I can help my kid out. So right. I don't know. Yeah. Again, that's, that's a whole nother topic and we could have a whole show on philosophical reasons of why we do what we do. Right. Um, right. Listen, you brought up a lot of pretty common sense ideas about student and teacher collaboration. However, as you know, implementing change is not always easy. What recommendations might you provide with any of our listeners wanting to try some of these strategies to get buy-in from their colleagues to form a quality PLC? And how can they pull some of that solid feedback from their students to enhance their instruction? So I think the first, the very first thing is you need to identify the need. What is the need? So You don't have to know what you're going to do about the need yet, but you need to identify it. And if there is a need, what's working, what's not working, and there's a group of people who identify, yeah, there's a need here. That is one way to kind of come together and say, we need to address this. We're not really sure how yet. That becomes the job of the PLC, right, to figure that out. I think people need to be committed to making a change. Change is not easy, and it takes time and it takes patience 
and it takes practice and people need to give each other sort of that support and that grace while they're stumbling through making some changes. But I think being committed to it and saying, no, we identified a need. What are we going to do here? We really need to work at this. My school, I've got incredible resources just in the other faculty. They're experts in their field. I need to tap into them and talk to the students. The students know what's going on. They might look interested in class. Are they really? And I think many of them are not. And I think letting go a little bit is important. I know I had a class one day. I was getting sick. I didn't feel well. I was not in top shape for that class. And do you know, at the end of class, I had students come to me and say, that was a great class. I couldn't for the life of me figure out why they thought that class was so great. And I realized it was because I let go. I was feeling under the weather. I was not going to be leading class. I took a secondary role and the kids were able to come forward and it made a big difference. And that's when I said, whoa, I need to step back, let go a little bit and let these students come forward. So patience and connect, reach out to people and connect. Like I said, incredible resources in my school. There's incredible resources online. People are out there on Twitter. I love it. Giving away ideas all the time, having great little conversations. I think reaching out and connecting with other people just like this through a podcast is fantastic. It gets you connected, gets the ideas turning a little bit. I like that. I just think I've often felt that same way. You know, you the days you maybe, I wouldn't call it give up, but give up on your control, they often have positive benefits because we do, the kids do want to take charge. They know what they want to learn about or what's on their mind. And we often try to silence them and, and say, wait, keep on together. I, I've got a place where I want to get you. And, and we forget that they need some time to just spend in whatever just happened or whatever was just mentioned. So I like that a lot. Yeah. And they, they just need some guidance along the way. Right. But I would say, reach out to other people, find that need, practice, try, try it, try it. Right. You never know. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe it won't work. I don't know, <laughs> but we need but, to try. But you know what? And, and that's another thing we've been talking about on this podcast is that we have to normalize failure for our students and for us. It's okay to try and fail because once we fail, then we realize that it didn't work, but maybe some pieces of it did work and we'll figure out, but let's not give up. Okay. Because I think we're on to something. We just need to change what we're doing. And again, it goes back to what I mentioned at the beginning, that whole design thinking your whole 3,600 mile bike ride was a design thinking activity that you took a risk with these kids and you made a memory and learned some information that will last you for the rest of your life. And I am certain that a lot of stuff went wrong for you on that trip. You know what I'm saying? But, you know, maybe, I mean, you had a lot of miles to figure it out. So maybe you did a hundred miles and you realized I should probably do the next hundred a little bit differently, or I'm not going to make it. <laughs> so absolutely try, try, try and learn from your mistakes. Yeah, I think, you know, teachers, I think it's really worthwhile for teachers to sort of engage in that reflection and self-study. And teachers need guidance in how to self-study. But we are the experts at what we do. And we should be able to take a critical look at what we do and study it. 
And, you know, that's where administrators can really step in and help too. Teachers don't always have the tools to engage in that kind of activity, but I think administrators can offer the support and the knowledge base to help teachers engage in that reflective self-study, really. Do you have any recommendations for books that our listeners should read to help them grow in their profession? Guiding them on this self-study, let's guide them. Yeah, I do. I have, so the first thing I would say is, Books are great, but I think there's a lot of online okay. blogs and online newsletters where there's a lot of information going on too. So I'm thinking MindShift KQED is a great online newsletter and Getting Smart is another one, another online newsletter that's really good. As far as PLCs go and adult learning There's a great book called Leading Adult Learning, Supporting Adult Development in Our Schools, which is by Drago Severson. I love that name. I want to read that book just because of his name. Right? (laughs) Let's see. Designed to Learn, Using Design Thinking to Bring Purpose and Passion to the Classroom by Portnoy is very good. Anything by Sir Ken Robinson about education is great, just about kind of tearing down Mm -hmm. some, some walls. I have another one here. George Koros wrote The Innovator's Mindset. There's a lot out there. I'd Absolutely. be happy to share a list with you. <laughs> no, you know what? And I, I should have I said, you know, give us your top three, but you were just rattling <laughs> off some great books. And I hope that maybe some of our listeners will pick some of that up. We'll put them in the show notes uh, so everybody didn't have to write them when they were driving. Listen, we're about to wrap this up. And rather than Ryan and I having a quick discussion after our meeting about what we feel the key takeaways are, I'm just going to throw that out to you. Of all the things we talked about today, and I'm going to tell you right now that I'm so glad we had you on the show because this has been this has been super inspirational to me. And that's why I love this podcast because it allows us to connect with people. And, and I hope that people are out there listening and taking as much positivity away from this conversation as I did, because you have talked about a wealth of different ideas and ways to get students to own their learning and to be a part of the process. But what is it if you just want them to take away one key point, what's the most important thing we talked about today that you want them to leave this interview remembering? I would say be willing to take risks and be willing to lean on each other. People have good ideas and I think we need to give those ideas space to grow. And so I would like to encourage people to take risks in sharing their ideas. The idea itself might not work, but there might be some kernel, some nugget in there that's going to spark an idea in someone else and that you don't know where that's going to lead. And so I think connecting and sharing your ideas and taking that risk to put yourself out there is really critical. Speaking of connecting, how can they connect with you? Oh, on Twitter. Absolutely. At Monica Hausen. And it's spelled H-O-U-S-E-N. Awesome. We will put that in the show notes as well. Monica, Dr. Hausen, I will call you doctor, even though you told me to call you Monica, because you have inspired me today. And I thank you so much for joining our show and taking some time. So thank you for being on our show. Well, thank you very much, Eric and Ryan. I really appreciate it. Thank Thank you you for having me. As always, thank you for checking us out at The Peg Doesn't Fit. We appreciate you listening. You can find us on Twitter at The Peg Doesn't Fit. You can find me at Ryan D. Bartle 1. And my personal Twitter is at Eric J. Steven. 
You can also email us at thepegdoesn'tfit at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at anchor.fm slash thepegdoesn'tfit. Drop us a five-star review on iTunes. Tell your educator friends or family, anybody. We'd love to hear from you. All right. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week on The Peg Doesn't Fit.